Hello everyone, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to this bumper Christmas podcast. Uh, as most of you all know, what I did was I asked for questions via the usual outlets, via Facebook, uh, Twitter, the website and so on. Uh, all the questions that became in before the deadline I've included my answers to in this uh, podcast because we had some great questions, you know, really uh, good topics to explore and talk about. So uh, thanks to everyone who submitted one. Um, because there were so many, um, what I've done is I've divided this podcast up into four segments, four sections, if you like. Where So there's one section where we discuss all the self-defense questions, there's one on the Katrin Bunkai, uh, there's one on general training, and there's one on the general karate-based questions. So ho- hopefully, you know, that putting them together in themes like that will make for a, a more uh, enjoyable and structured listen. And because it is a long podcast, I've decided to split it into two halves. So the first half, um, if you're listening to that, you know, it came out today. <laughs> and the second half will come out tomorrow. Um, of course, if you listen to this podcast at any other time, you should find both of them in your feed now. Right? So, And it's been 10 years since we did the uh, first podcast, over 10 years. And as uh, regular listeners will know, I've been asking you for what are your favourite podcasts. And then I'm going to uh, do something with those. Well, I now have that finalised list and I'll reveal that what your favourite podcasts have been. I'll reveal that in the next podcast. Um, This one's full enough as it is. And what I'm going to do with those uh, podcasts is I'm going to put a book together based on those podcasts. So those those themes that you found most interesting, those ones that you want me to explore, um, I'm going to do a a written version of them. So for example, like uh, the one very popular podcast was the Marshall Map podcast. But it's only ever been a podcast. There's never been a written version of that um, available to everybody. So I'm going to make that available with lots of other bits and pieces in the form of a limited edition book just to celebrate the you know 10 years of the podcast. So more news on that uh, next time, and I hope that that's something that you uh, are interested in. And the final thing to mention before we get into the podcast itself is that, as I did with the last question and answer podcast, I have some sponsors. <laughs> So what I did in the last one, just to break it up, I had these little indents from various sponsors, you know, just jokey, humorous things, poking fun at various elements of the martial arts subculture. Uh, I thought they were funny when I wrote them. People seemed to like them. Uh, feedback on them was very good. So with this long Q&A podcast, I thought it's about time we, we had some other sponsors. So I've done it slightly differently, but you'll see what I mean as you listen through. And hopefully, again, that will make for a lighter, more enjoyable uh, listen. Um, so, okay, so without further ado, here's a word from our very first sponsor. New from MacDojo Supplies, the Spectrum Student Belt Range. Here at MacDojo Supplies, we know that belt testing is a major source of income for all you MacDojos. To beat your competitors, you need to be grading your students every week. But what do you do when your student gets to black belt too quickly and your income stream dries up? We have the solution with our 100 grade Spectrum Student Belt range. While other dojos simply have yellow, join up and offer your students the widest range of belt ranks ever. Remember to bring your credit card to every session? Well here's your buttermilk belt. Able to curl your fingers into a fist? Well here's your pale lemon belt. Able to bow without falling over? Hand over $200 and you'll get your faded daffodil belt. Remembered your first cutter? No? Well, at least you tried. You've now earned your Ashen Mustard Belt. Able to spar? No? Well, not to worry. We'd never really ask you to spar anyway. But you thought about it. So for just $200, you can be graded to the level of Citrus Sunset Belt. Able to break through a balsa wood board in under 100 strikes? Just $300 and you'll get the coveted Dusky Pineapple Belt. 
Able to clean the dojo for free for six days a week? Well, that shows you're a team player, and hence the Shades of Honey Belt is yours for just $400. You're making great progress. Time to learn the shin kick. Pay $500 and be promoted to Bold Banana Skin Belt. Contact McDojo Supplies now! Okay, so we'll start with the self-defense questions. So we've got uh, Tim Ide, I think, hope I'm pronouncing that right, that's I-D-E. He asks, uh, what's your opinion on the use of weapons, uh, like kaboten, tactical pen, knife, pepper spray and so on in self-defense? And Greg Davies asks a related question where he to- uh, asks about UK legal carry uh, personal protection tools and obviously our related weapons laws. Well, the thing for the UK is you are not allowed to carry anything with- for that purpose. It's an offence to carry an offensive weapon, and what is an offensive weapon is defined by Section 1-4 of the Prevention of Crime Act 1953, and that describes it as any article made or adapted for use for causing injury to a person or intended by the person having it with him for such use. So, obviously, if you have a, a weapon, then that's made to hurt someone. If you've taken an everyday object and you've adapted it in some way, well, so it can hurt someone, again, that would be an offensive weapon. And even an everyday item that hasn't been adapted and is not designed for hurting people, if you have that with you with the intention of using it to harm others, it's an offensive weapon. Now, so and where that now we've got problems with that because if you got stopped and searched, or you know for whatever reason, or you're involved in an incident, then it could come up and it could be used against you. Uh, now, also if you used it in self-defence too, so if you if you use that weapon, that could cause you criminal problems and, and help the criminal get off. So, if you give an example, like. Uh, Let's say a steel comb. You've got like a metal, a metal comb. So obviously with that serrated edge down one side, it could be potentially dangerous. Certain ones have like a handle with a point on the end of it. So a metal comb could be used as a, an everyday carry weapon. So if you were someone who had long hair and carried that comb with you, and then during the course of a, an altercation, you'd managed to get your hand on it and you'd used it. So long as the force used was necessary and justifiable under the law, then I think it would be unlikely the fact that you've used the comb would have been a problem. Now, for me, because I'm, you know, as you're all well aware, completely bald, if I'd used that same thing, the question we asked is, well, why did you have that with you? The people, you know, defending the criminal, the person who would attack me could then argue, well, look, look, this guy obviously has no need for this. He used it on, on our, our, our client. It was obviously carried with the intention of being a surreptitious weapon. This is proof that this guy was set out to harm our client. And our, this is what our client is saying. He's saying that, you know, Ian was the bad guy. Ian caused all the trouble. You know, criminals lie, right? They're going to say that it was all you and, and, and it was nothing to do with them. They're not going to come clean. They're going to say that you're the bad guy in all of this. And if the fact you have what is legally defined as an offensive weapon on you, that will help. Like I say, there are plenty of uh, everyday items that in the UK that you will carry with you. Uh, and, and we should consider how we would make use of those as weapons of, of last resort. So this thing, the obvious things, like, you know, pretty much everyone will have a cell phone on them for legitimate reasons all day, every day. Then you've got things like, you know, um, dog leads, or big heavy dog lead. You've got, like, effectively, you've got a chain there with you. Again, you couldn't have it in your pocket all day, every day, but if you were walking your dogs, you know, you could rely on that lead and use that as a weapon. So uh, crook lock in your car if you've got one of those big heavy thing, you know, all kinds of things. But I would suggest that rather than having, uh, for those in the UK, rather than having your dedicated self-defense tool because of the legal problems that could cause, 
I think you're far better uh, getting into the habit of looking at everyday objects and considering how they could be used as, as, as weapons. So this is, uh, and, and there's, there's karate precedent for this as well. So if you read like um, The Study of Karate Techniques, it's uh, Itaman's book from the 1930s. When he's talking about what karate is, he said it's the use of the empty hand, everyday objects and the environment. So he he sees this as a fundamental part of karate that we get used to using not just our God-given self-defense tools, our fists, our elbows, our knees, that we also look at like how we can use the environment to our advantage, and we also look at how we can use everyday objects to our advantage. So a nice, useful exercise for self-defense-focused karateka to do is to look around you and think, okay, if I was attacked now, what would I do? You know, what would I do? So, you know, what what objects at the hand? You know, so if you're sitting in a coffee shop, I've got a hot cup of coffee. That is something that I could use. If you're driving your car, you know, what's, what's in arm's reach that I could use for, from this, this this position? Sitting at your desk, you know, what are the things on the, the desk that I could use, use now? Um, but I would advise against carrying any dedicated item specifically for the purpose of defending yourself because of the problems that can cause legally. I think you're... Uh, better relying on the your empty hand tools. So, of course, it's not the same the world over, of course. That's UK-specific. So I'm guessing from Tim's list of, of, of uh, weapons there and self-defence weapons, he doesn't live in the UK. The Kaboten, you know, the little metal stick that you, people attach to the key rings, that's on the offensive weapons list in the UK. You can't have that on in the UK. Uh, people think you can't. Oh, it's just a key ring. It's not just a key ring. And if a police officer sees you with that or catches you with that, you're, you're in breach of UK weapons laws. You can argue about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's a fact. That's that's the laws, right? So, um, uh, Caborton, you've got that. Tactical pen, again, wouldn't be allowed in the UK. Uh, knife, if you're talking about a knife, um, in the UK you're allowed to carry a knife that is shorter than three inches and doesn't lock. You, you don't need a, a, a reason to have that with you. So the thinking of things like a Swiss Army knife, you know, like a, a pocket tool. So I'm someone who does have a pocket tool with me all day, every day. It just comes in, you know, really, really handy. But uh, again, it's a Swiss Army knife. But I couldn't have a longer one. I couldn't have one that uh, that would either be longer or would lock, because that has a potential to be used as a, a weapon in the way that you know a little folding pocket knife doesn't doesn't really, you know, snapshot on your fingers if you try to use it that way. Uh, pepper spray again, that's illegal in the UK too. But if you live in a place the, the the part of the world where these are legal, then obviously you know they they do have their their uses, but, but I would suggest one of the problems is that you need to be able to get to them and employ them as well. So if you're uh, attacked and your sole method of defending yourself is, oh, I will you know, reach into my handbag or my pocket and I'll pull out my pepper spray, you could be beaten before you've even managed to get your hand towards your pocket. So what I think is really important is we've got good empty hand skills because they're always immediately accessible, immediately ready. And we have the good empty uh, hand skills, and we've got the these tools, if we're allowed them legally, as a backup. You know, so we've, we've got those that we can get to uh, if um, if we need them. So, and, and there has been instances of that, you know, here in the the, um, uh, the UK, as I understand it, when they introduced the extendable baton for police officers, uh, the accident rates, injury rates officers went up because they were relying heavily on the, the, the baton. So sometimes, you know, they'd be reaching for the baton when they should have been maybe doing other things. And the, the weapon, they believe, uh, gave extra confidence. You know, so they thought, oh, I've got my extendable baton now. I can deal with situations I maybe wouldn't have tried to deal with on my own before. So, um, yeah, so I, I think that the weapons, if you're allowed them, it's something useful. It's something to consider that can be uh, a useful part of your, your toolkit. 
But I would advise uh, against relying on them more than your empty hand skills because your empty hand skills are immediately accessible. And then, you know, you've got the weapons there as, uh, as backups if you need them. And for those in the UK and other places where the weapons laws are, you know, a little bit tighter, you need to be considering how you can use those everyday items. And I would avoid against carrying anything uh, specifically for that purpose because of the legal trouble you could find yourself in. Last thing you want to do is defend yourself. And because you chose to use a a tool, then you find yourself, you know, you're locked up and the criminal's walking free. You know, you, we, we, we don't want that. Good empty hand skills. Take them everywhere with you. You know, that's the thing. Is when I'm not, someone who travels a lot, go through airport scanners a lot, and they'll check absolutely everything, which, you know, is great. I like that. You know, to make sure there's nothing that can be used as a weapon. No nail clippers, no nothing. You know, nothing at all. Yet I can walk right through with my hands all the time. You know, my, my hands aren't picked up by it. And I've spent years and years and years and years making sure I can use those hands effectively. So, you know, empty hands skills, I think, take precedence over the backup weapon skills, I think. We interrupt this podcast to bring you some breaking news. Buru Tawagoto has been signed to fight at the next Optimum Fighting Championships event. This is the first time a genuine ninja warrior has competed in MMA and sports fans from around the globe are very excited to see this highly respected warrior in action in the OFC Heptagon. We expect a live announcement from the OFC shortly. Stay tuned. Yeah, the next question is uh, Jeremy McLean. Uh, hello, Jeremy. He said, how does the society's laws affect its citizens' training methods, you know, karate curriculum, uh, in regards to the legalities of interpersonal conflict? Well, I mean, it definitely does, as we've just talked about, you know, the, the law of the land shifts as you move around the globe. So depending on where you are, your training should be in accordance with the with the laws of the land. But I, I'll go back one uh, further there, you know, so... Because Jeremy asked, you know, how does it? And and the answer is, uh, it should. It may or may not, but it should. So you'll get some schools that are just blind to the law, that just never, ever consider it. You also get some, this happens quite a lot here in the UK, people who don't know the law but talk as if they do. You know, so you'll get these, oh, you know, the law's on the side of the criminal, and if they grab you, you're only allowed to grab them, and, and it's all it's utter nonsense. It's just completely untrue when you actually look at the law and the way that it, it works. So what we should do is we should be familiar with the law of the land in our, you know, where we live, where we live and work. And then what we do is we make sure that the training is in accordance with it. Now, the reason we want to do that is, you know, obviously in the heat of conflict, we can't be, okay, what was that again? You know, what was the, uh, what did it say? What was that section? The Criminal Justice and Immigration Act 2008. What did it define reasonable force as? There's no way that you can make those decisions when you're under that, under stress. You're going to re rely on what you've been trained to do. So if you organize your training to be in accordance with the law, you will legally, uh, instinctively rather, act in a legal way. And, and that's what we need to be trying to get so uh, we don't end up on the wrong side of the law. Because as Rory Miller points out, we, we get this false choice being presented to us. Better to be judged by 12 than carried by 6. Well, it's a false choice. You know, it, it, the, your options aren't prison or death. You can legitimately and legally defend yourself. And, and stay on the right side of the law. So under UK law, the action that you've taken needs to be necessary and, um, and uh, reasonable. You know, that's it. So in terms of necessary, well, there was a threat. I had to deal with that threat. 
in terms of you know the reasonable force, the UK law says things like this is specific. This is in the law. It says, yeah, you d- uh, a man is not expected to judge to a nicety the level of force used, and if the action is honest and instinctive, that's strong evidence that the action taken was reasonable. Uh, these are uh, and again in the UK law, it it, it has to be. You had to honestly believe it was necessary, irrespective of whether it was mistaken or an unreasonable belief. You just had to believe that the action was necessary and been able to demonstrate that you honestly held that belief. Now, in some parts of the world, of course, they do have this, what they call the reasonable person test. That would a reasonable person have done the same thing? In the UK, we don't have that. <laughs> Maybe we've got a shortage of reasonable people. I don't know. But uh, in the UK, it's just so long as you honestly ha- held it, irrespective of whether it was reasonable or not. The only exception to that is what they call voluntary intoxication. So if you were drunker on drugs and made a bad decision and had a, or had an honestly held belief because you were drunk, um, then you're not entitled to rely on that one. But if you're sober and you make a mistake, and even if it's an unreasonable belief, so long as you uh, held that belief and honestly held that belief, then you are entitled to rely on it as, as part of your, uh, your claim of self-defense. So, um, yeah, so back on point, you know, so, so the law changes around the world, but what we need to make sure we do that the training is in accordance with it. So, uh, so for example, when we do our self-defense drills, as soon as you can escape, you do escape. You know, we have this thing conditioned where people will uh, run to safe areas of the dojo and everything else. So during the, the course of uh, a self-defense situation... You're not sitting there thinking, okay, I've hit him four times. Would five be unreasonable? What about six? Mm, maybe if I hit him with a light one. That, that's not the way it works. You run away the instant you can run away. Well, if you're doing that, it's hard to see how you can find yourself on the wrong side of the law. Because by definition, you, you weren't able to run away until it was possible to do so. So therefore, the force used is both reasonable and necessary. So it, it doesn't require an in-depth remembering of the law in the heat of conflict. You just train in accordance with it. And then because of that, uh, we, we don't find ourselves in this position of having to defend ourselves and then find that we're in legal trouble afterwards, too. So, yeah, so uh, law is something that desperately needs to be considered more. And I would suggest that most self-defense instructors, in air quotes, because if they're, they're not a self-defense instructor, if they're not considering law, they're teaching martial arts and pretending it's self-defense. But um, you need to be aware of what the law of the land is, and you need to make sure that the training is in accordance with it. So when your students do what they need to do, they don't find themselves locked up after the event. You know, um, certainly in the UK, the law is very, very good. It is. It, it reflects the reality of these situations as they happen. They don't expect you to get everything perfectly right. They understand that you'll be stressed and scared, and the the law is is, is very, very good. So I, I think that anyone who is training for legitimate self-defense, where the aim is to keep yourself safe from criminals, uh, to escape these dangerous situations. It's very easy to do that in a way that's in accordance with the law. Um, so, yeah, definitely. You should know what the law is. Uh, next one is from uh, Patrick Lester. He says, what's your opinion on Q-show points for self-defense? I think when it comes to like the, the striking areas, uh, it, they are very much a, a lower-tier area of study. If we're putting pressure points as the first and foremost 
thing that you're relying on, you're going to have problems for loads of reasons. You know, chief among them is the fact that real situations are chaotic, really, really chaotic. So being able to kind of get your hand to a specific location is very, very difficult. Uh, people move so much, you know, that, that it's one thing when the guy's standing in front of you for a demonstration. It's another thing when all hell's broken loose to be able to hit these places specifically. And, and the other thing is this idea of light taps, that's a myth. You know, that, that's a myth. This idea that you can lightly tap somebody and the guy passes out. I know it may work well on compliant demonstrations. The reality is that's not the way the human body's put together. We're, we're better designed than that. We don't collapse or shut down after light taps. You need to hit these weak areas with a good degree of force. So key skills like, you know, being able to hit hard, being able to move well, being able to fight aggressively, all these kind of things are way more important than whether you're hitting these pinpoint places accurately. You know, and, and sometimes the argument gets put forth, yeah, but if you know where to hit, you don't need to hit as hard. Well, it's true, but you still need to hit hard, because the reality is you can't always hit these pinpoint places. And even if you could, it's still not a matter of just touching the thing. You need to hit them fairly hard. So I, I, I like studying weak points. Uh, I believe in that it should be part of your study. Um, but I believe that if you're relying on accurate light taps, that's very problematic. Uh, next two we've got are from uh, Charles Lampshire and Max Lehner. They're kind of related questions. So uh, Charles asks, he says, uh, can an instructor teach effective self-defense if he or she has never fought in a violent conflict outside the dojo? And then Max asks, am I by own experience? You know, have you uh, ever been in a situation where you've had to employ, you know, what you do? So if I start with Charles's first, my belief is that, yes, you definitely can be an effective self-defense instructor if you've never directly experienced violence. Because, and, and I know you sometimes get this, no, unless you've been there, you can't teach it. You know, that, that's a commonly thrown out phrase. The, the, the trouble with that is, it, it, it's a mixed message. Because any good self-defense instructor will tell you, you know, you are doing well. Your self-defense is really good if you're not getting involved in violent encounters. Your entire aim of your self-defense is good personal security habits, good awareness skills, so it never, ever gets physical. So we tell our students that, and then the next breath we go, oh, but if you want to teach that, I expect you to get into situations where it's got to get physical, otherwise you won't have any legitimacy. So there's, there's a conflict there, which a lot of people don't see. But, but it's not good to do that because you're encouraging your students to do bad self-defense if you're telling them you can't teach this unless you've really been there. So that's one thing, right? The other one is what, the, what you need to teach it effectively is a solid appreciation of what real violence is like. Now, if you don't know that, if you've never had direct experience of that, your obligation is to find out. You need to talk to people who have had that happen. And those people need to inform the way that you train. We need to create realistic drills for you so you can say, well, look, I've never been in a real fight, but I've done simulations of it. And, of course, it's not the same. You know, it can be realistic, but it's not real. But, but nevertheless, those uh, things that they're going to learn from doing these live drills will help inform the teaching and the training and everything else. And I think a good analogy is the military. We, we don't send soldiers into battle saying, okay, the only way to learn to do this is actual conflict. What we do is we say, right, other people have been out to battle. We understand 
what war is like. We understand the way things are going to go down. We've created drills that replicate that. We're going to give you these skills. And then if you as an individual soldier ever have to go to war, ever find yourself in you know, a, a, a firefight, you will know the right thing to do because other people's experiences have informed the training we give you, which is giving you the experiences to survive situations like this. So that's what we should be doing uh, for our students. The problem we have, of course, is what you get. A lot of people just invent what violence is in their own mind and and and, and talk with authority about it, and that's not good. You know, it, it needs to be what violence is really and truly like. Now, the other thing, of course, if you are of the view that no, you, you can't teach it unless you've done it. Um, you do have, like, say, the the problem there that you're going to run out of instructors really quickly. So if you have had lots of real-life experience and you're able to effectively teach people, so you believe you're a good teacher, you should be able to effectively um, communicate to them what they need to do to survive violent confrontations. And if you've done that, then they understand that. So there's no reason why they can't uh, pass that on as well, you know, even if it's second-hand. And in doing so, you're helping more people. You're helping more people be able to deal with, with violent crime. So, yeah, it's a complicated one. It's not, it's, it's nuanced, I think, on, on, on that one. But the, the fundamental thing is you need to have, uh, your training informed by what real life is like. So that looks to Max's question, you know, he asked, have I ever had, you know, in situations where I've had to use my skills? Well, you know, and I have. I have. So, but having been in those situations, um, I can honestly say that I learned more about how to protect myself through my time in the dojo than I ever did through any life situation. Those life situations were just confirmation of what others had already told me, or I was already learning. You know, I learned more about how to lock, throw, punch, and move in the dojo than I ever did in a real fight. They're, they're not great learning opportunities. And also, you know, like I have had, you know, real life experiences, but they are limited compared to the real life experiences of some of the people that I've trained with. So, for example, if I think of like, uh, you know, Jeff Thompson, Peter Considine, I've had a lot more real life experience than I've had. And if I think of people like, uh, like Rory Miller and, and, and Mark McYoung, again, you know, a lot more real life experience than I've had. So what I would do is I would consult with these guys and go, okay, this is my experience. You know, and, and, but what's yours? Because you, you know more than me. You know, you, you, you've, you've experienced more. So I need to make sure that, is there a blind spot from my own personal experience? Um, and make sure that I plug it. And this is another important one. There are lots of different kinds of violence and no one has experienced all of them. Let's say, for example, so let's take an example. So a guy has, has worked as a doorman. Let's say that. So self-defense instructor and he spent time working as a doorman in a club. So he has lots of experience of dealing with, uh, drunk and aggressive individuals. Now, so he, he knows about that. He's a first-hand experience of that. But what about the teenage girl who runs a risk of an abusive boyfriend or a date rape? You know what I mean? These kind of things. If you're going to teach self-defense, you need to teach those people too. You can't just say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I can't help you because I've never had direct experience of that. Uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get myself into an abusive relationship and then I'll come back so I've had first-hand experience of it. And then I'll tell you what to do. What we can do is we can say, right, there's, you know, sadly, there's lots of people who've had that experience. What was their experience? What did they learn? What are the people who've been through that? What are they saying? What, how are they, what are the signs of such a relationships? How do you get yourself out of such relationships? What personal character traits or flaws can see you get into these kind of relationships? And what can you do to address them? And then we teach that as part of our self-defense as well. So, um, so personal experience, if you've got it, is useful, but don't go seeking it. And then also realize the limitations of your own personal experience. 
seek out others who've had more experiences and different experiences and acquire their knowledge. Listen to people who, where it's actually happened. And if you're doing that, you'll be a good self-defense instructor. You'll be a bad self-defense instructor if you invent violence in your own mind. You'll be a bad self-defense instructor if you think your own personal experience applies to every other human being on the planet. Uh, and, and you'll be a, a bad self-defense instructor if you inadvertently tell your students to go out and seek trouble because I'm not going to think that you're legitimate until you have. So, um, so yeah, it's an in, probably do a whole podcast on that one itself, but I hope there's something in there that's um, that's quite useful. Uh, just before we leave this as well, just one um, additional thought. is There's a good analogy in the Heimlich maneuver for this. So uh, most people will be familiar with this. It's, you know, it's a method of uh, doing abdominal thrusts. Um, in order to prevent someone from choking. So, you know, you kind of move behind them, pushing towards the abdominal, do this particular method, and whatever's lodged in the windpipe can come out, and it stops the person from choking. So, like most martial arts instructors, you know, you've got to be first aid qualified. I have a first aid certificate. Uh, a few years ago, I'm in a public building, and I hear this commotion at the other end of the corridor. I look along, and there's a guy choking. Uh, people around him smashing his back. It's doing nothing. So I run down the corridor, I take over, I try and do the same thing, I hit him on the back, nothing's happening, I move behind him, I do the Heimlich manoeuvre, right? Up this bit of bacon sandwich flies out of his mouth, okay? The guy was fine. So at that point there, I have live experience of doing the Heimlich manoeuvre, I've done it live, right? Uh, about a year or so later, I'm looking at the news and it turns out that Heimlich, the guy who invented the manoeuvre, the doctor who invented this method, uh, had used his own manoeuvre for the very first time. You know, as an elderly guy now, he'd been in a restaurant, some guy starts to choke, Heimlich uses his own manoeuvre. So there was a period of time where I had live experience of using the Heimlich manoeuvre, but Heimlich himself didn't. Now, so who would you want to learn it off? Would you want to learn it off me? Because I go, oh, I've done it live. I, I, I've done it live. I've done it real. I've done it when, you know, people's health was at stake. You know, I, I've done it for real. And Heimlich can only say, well, I understand it in theory. So, so if you take the, you know, live experience is always best argument, then in, you should want to learn the Heimlich maneuver off me. And that's obviously not right, you know, because, because I'm the guy with the live experience. Um, of course, the, the way that Heimlich designed that maneuver was he fully understood choking. He'd researched choking. He was educated in choking. He'd talked to lots of people about choking and came up with this method to prevent people from choking, which has saved countless lives. But Heimlich himself never had live experience of doing it. He just fully understood his topic. So we can be like that with the self-defense instructors. We can, just, so long as we fully understand the dynamic of it, you know. And and and, um, and like when you do a first aid course, don't actually make people choke. When I when I did my first aid training they said okay here's how it would work let you have a little practice of it like a dummy run make sure that you understand it great we didn't say okay we'll actually make someone choke so you can prove you can do it so the, the first time i did that i mean i did it successfully which proved the training worked was when i had to do it live um but again going back on point that the idea is that you need a full understanding of what actual violence is like and then you will be a good self-defense instructor individual uh, experience uh, is useful but again it doesn't negate the need to fully understand the area because everyone's individual experience is always limited to some degree so you want to be like heimlich if you want to be a really good self-defense instructor you fully understand the nature of criminal violence and you'll get that by researching the topic by talking to other people by doing dummy runs just like you do in the first aid training and then you're able to pass on usable skills um to to other people so um yeah very important topic i think
Uh, the next one we've got is from uh, Marlon Wilson. He says, given the nature of a criminal assault, how much emphasis do you place on uh, kicking drills and, of course, why? So that depends, really. So for self-defense, uh, kicking is very much a lower-tier skill for several reasons. One is that the range at which most physical confrontations take place. You're very, very close. Um, so the kicking distance that we would normally employ when sparring is not there. If, you, if you're that far apart, you just run off. You know, but if, if, you, if you're really close together like that, it can be difficult to employ some of the kicks. The other thing is because you are so close, stability becomes very important. So you don't want to be lifting your foot off the floor. Certainly you don't want to be kicking high either. So if you are kicking, it wants to be low. So lower than mid-thigh generally. The groin being one possible exception to that. But for all of the targets, lower than mid-thigh. And, and the interesting thing is we see this reflected in the kata as well. If you look at the karate kata, there's not a lot of kicking in it. By comparison to the other methods, you know, the punching and all the other stuff, there's a lot more of that, of the punching, the locking, all that kind of, than there is of kicking. Kicking's relatively sparse in kata when you look at it, um, which is reflecting the nature of civilian violence. But following on from that, in my own training, we put a, quite a bit of emphasis on kicking because we also cover the fighting side of it. So we'll do lots of pad drills and we do, you know, head-eye kicking and we practice putting in powerful head-eye kicks. But that's for the fighting side of it, you know, the, the enjoyment, the study of it. For the self-defense side of it, it's all low-line, simple, basic kicks, just as we see recorded in the Katabunkai. So, so the answer for the self-defense side of it, we don't put much emphasis on kicking at all. But with the overall practice, that gets a little bit larger because we're studying the uh, martial arts and the fighting side of it as well. So obviously that increases the um, the degree on to which kicking is involved and the role in which it uh, it plays. Okay, the next one we've got is uh, four questions actually, but they're all kind of fairly uh, related. So I'll, I'll go through them in turn so we get to discuss the, the issue fully. Um, but uh, Steve Hollinghurst starts by asking that, you know, Anka Witoso recommended the teaching of karate in schools. So can karate be a self-protection system that covers the situations children are likely to face inside and outside of schools? Uh, obviously, I believe in karate as a, as a physical system, but I think for children, they're far better, far more effective. Uh, if the, Our goal is to teach, to keep them safe, is to teach them about personal safety. Um, obviously, I grew up in the 1970s, and those in the UK in the 1970s remember that on Saturday morning when we were watching our cartoons and our TV shows, there was loads of public service announcements about, you know, Charlie, you know, the, the cat and the boy and all that, about not going with strangers, and, you know, even if someone says your mum sent you to pick them up, you don't go with them, and all this kind of stuff. There was lots of it that we, we got given through TV. Um, and I'm pleased to say that most of the schools that I know do that too. You know, they, they teach about them about internet safety. They, they get taught about abusive relationships. They get taught about keeping themselves safe. Um, I know the local school gets charities in and then teaches people about rape prevention and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's tragic that we live in a world where such knowledge is needed, but it's, it's a good thing that it is taught. And I think that's more useful for children than block, kick and punch, the physical uh, side of it, I think. There's other elements of that, but they'll be addressed by the following question. So Michael Freckleton, he asked, he said, what should uh, kids be taught? Should they be taught practical bunkai or what he calls the Itosu school version? Which I think maybe the Itosu school, I know exactly what you mean. You mean the kind of block, kick, punch from a distance stuff. But I don't think that came from Itosu really. That came from later generations. Itosu started to teach kata without application. And then we have later on, we have people filling the gaps and inventing, you know, 
long range karate versus karate, highly choreographed bunkai. But I get exactly what you mean. Is should they be taught like functional uh, bunkai or uh, the non-functional uh, distance stuff? And I'm somewhere. I don't think you teach them either. You know, if, if you're talking about young young children, they shouldn't be getting taught how to rip out eyes and grab throats and crank necks. You know, that's that's just socially irresponsible to teach that to children who don't have the emotional control for that kind of stuff. What we should be teaching, uh, but again, there's no point teaching them the long at a distance stuff either because it's a martial dead end. It doesn't go anywhere. What I would be teaching children is simple breakaways, you know, for self-defense stuff. I'd be teaching them, you know, to scream and shout, to kick and scratch if someone much bigger had hold of them. Uh, I, I would be teaching them uh, those kind of, like, basic skills. And I'd also be teaching them the things that they're going to need for when they get older. So I'd teach them basic grappling skills, basic movement skills. Because then when they get to an age where they're ready to learn the uh, more serious applications, they've got the skills that will allow them to employ them. So they can, they can already control a limb, they can already grip properly, they can already move properly, they've already got good reaction skills. So um, I, would, I would teach them safe things with a view to getting them towards the adult bunkai. And I would never teach the one step at a distance block kick punch stuff because it's a martial dead end. It doesn't go anywhere. They can, they can never make use of that. It's just pointless. It's busy work. So I, I wouldn't teach them that. And then uh, Mark from the forum, he kind of expands on that, and he said, uh, how do you feel about teaching children karate? What would you suggest was a minimum age? And he points out that in Funakoshi in Karate Kyo, Kyohan said 11 to 14. So for me, we take them at teenage age. He's the youngest we'll take them. We don't do six, seven-year-olds, that kind of thing, as I know some schools do. And I changed my mind on this quite recently, too, because my view was always, well, you know, if you've got them at the teenage, they're at the point where they're getting ready to learn something, uh, I started when I was 11, so if you get someone to start 13, 14, you know, that they're a good age then to start learning karate. They're a little bit more mature physically and emotionally, so they can, we've got to, we still don't teach them neck breaks and all that kind of stuff, you know, but the cranks and chokes and strangles and joint locks, because it's just bad for young bodies, but we can teach them some core skills getting them ready. But I don't really teach really young kids, and I was talking with a friend of mine about this, and he said, well, he says, yeah, no, I get you. He says, I don't, I don't teach my kids practical skills until they're older but what I do teach them is they learn the solo form of the kata uh, they know how to move well uh, they are um, engaged in a healthy lifestyle um, they know all the kicks and they know all the punches and they've got all of this kind of stuff going for them they've been taught basic personal safety skills and things like this he said so when I have my 15 year old they've got all that background knowledge he said because you're not starting to teach them until their age you're starting from scratch whereas i've used that time to teach them these other things and get them ready and i thought well there's no argument against that that's a good point so if you are teaching young children you teach them an appropriate version you make it fun you make it enjoyable you keep them fit and healthy i mean exercise man if we're talking about keeping kids safe you know like obesity and inactivity they're more likely to take them out than violent crime so, you know, so get them in this, this positive lifestyle, get them going with that. And then as they get older, then you can move them on to those, those other things and they're going to learn them quickly because they've got all this background knowledge. So I don't think it really matters what age you're teaching the children from. Um, so long as you're teaching them age-appropriate karate, you know, I think that that's the, the important thing. And then we've got uh, Greg Linham talks about uh, Linham. Sorry, he said, uh, uh, "What do I think about the petition to introduce personal safety and self-defence curriculum into schools, um, into UK schools?" 
See, I, I, again, I, I think it's a matter of teaching the right stuff in schools. And uh, the schools that I've been involved with do do that. So when I go into one of the local schools and I do deliver like uh, self-defence courses for them as part of their personal and social education. And uh, for me, it's all about those personal security habits. That's what, what I'm talking about mainly. So for the... The people I'm talking to were typically like 15, 16, 17, that kind of age. So I'm warning them about, you know, the dangers of drink. And we're talking about what the law will require of them. Uh, with the girls, we talk about, you know, the dangers of abusive relationships and the signs of those and what they're likely to be. So it's more that uh, broad personal security stuff. And and the only physical technique I teach them is a preemptive slap and run because it's without regular training that's probably the only thing that might stand a chance of getting to work and, and the far more valuable skills are getting them to think about the way they live their life so they don't put themselves into potentially dangerous situations so that, that's what we focus on and i think that's what the uh, school should focus on too so i can't say for every school because obviously i've not been involved in every school but certainly the ones near where i live that's what you'll get the younger kids get taught about you know the stranger danger stuff and um, about being safe online and you know always tell your parents if you find something disturbing online or if some remember that people who are talking to you may not be who they appear to be don't give out personal information online that kind of stuff which i think is you know really important and useful for their age and for the older ones, I say, the kind of stuff that, that, that I would um, deliver to them. And there's also, in the UK, there's a great charity called the Suzu uh, Lamplu Trust. And I've got uh, friends who are involved in delivering that training. And that's all about uh, personal security habits. Um, nothing physical. And I know they work in the same local schools as well. They come in and give them talks about keeping themselves um, safe through good personal security habits. So, yeah, there's some questions on teaching children. We interrupt this podcast to bring you some breaking news. Dan Black, spokesperson from the OFC, has just announced that Ninja Warrior Buro Tawagoto is already in breach of contract for failing to turn up for his very first press conference. More news as it happens. So the next one we've got is from uh, George Ettencott. He says, what are the best ways to teach students to avoid trouble or walk away and to assess when they can and cannot do so and what to do following uh, an incident? See, that's all that's, I mean, that's great stuff that in, in that question because th this is where, you know, there's that old saying that if all you've got's a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. So what martial arts instructors do is they, and often martial arts instructors are the worst self-defense instructors. Because they say, okay, what I've got is a physical set of fighting skills. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pretend self-defense is fighting, and I'm going to force that in. And, and it, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. There's, there's all this pre-incident and post-incident stuff. Uh, there's also the skills of not fighting. You know, but again, if you're a martial artist, you, you've, you've always, um, you fight. That's what you do. So the, the not fighting skills are never practiced or never considered. So to, to avoid trouble or walk away, um, there's, there's a few things with that. The first thing is it needs to be actively encouraged. Not, not enough just to say, walk away if you can. But one of the things, you know, we have to realize, especially for you know, young males are probably the ones who are most susceptible to this, but you, all the media, all the films show a, a man, in air quotes, has been someone who doesn't back down, who will stand up to people. You know, look at every action movie hero. You know, none of them back down or walk away or leave the problem. They always get the revenge. They always stand up. They always take no BS from nobody. 
uh, and then people copy that. Then you look at the way, the, even the public face of martial arts. Look at the way that athletes act at press conferences for MMA and, and, and for boxing and shouting at each other and insulting each other. And, and I get they've got to do that to generate interest in the fight. I get that's all part of the promotion. But nevertheless, into the culture, it sends a message, you know, that's what a man's like. A man insults people. A man doesn't back down. That, that's what a fighter does. So you've got to break that. As a self-defense instructor, you've got to go, the real world is not like a sport and arena, and it's not like a movie. There are very serious physical and legal consequences for violence, and a smart, self-confidence, manly man will not get involved in conflict unless they absolutely have to. Now, sure, if you have to, they'll make a good job of it, right? But if they don't have to, then they'll, they'll always walk away from it. And I'll get, I'll, I think I've told this story before, but I'll, I'll tell it again. It was a, I got an email years and years ago. Uh, from a guy who told me that he'd been sitting in a train station late at night, you know, so like end of the line, no one else around kind of place. Uh, he suddenly spots his two guys walking towards him. He realizes one of them has got a knife in his hand. He sees the knife. It's out. Uh, he looks at the other guy and he can't see his hand, but it looks like it could be holding something. So he considers, okay, he may have a, a weapon too. This guy drops his bags and runs away. Okay. And then, a few days later, he drops me an email, and he tells me about this situation, that he'd got away. Right? But he said, you know, I felt weak. I felt so uh, cowardly that I ran away, and I've trained in martial arts for years, and I should have stood up to them, and, and, and I didn't do that. And I feel really bad. I feel weak. I feel unmanly. I feel emasculated. So I'm reaching out to you to tell me, you know, what can I do so in future I, I don't run away, and, and I, I do, you know, do what a martial artist should do. And, you know, and I wrote back to him saying, you could not have dealt with that situation better. You had your awareness switched on. You saw the situation develop. You were out of that situation before it got physical. You got away without a scratch. No legal problems, nothing. All you lost was some luggage. You know, big deal. That was it. You, you did everything perfectly. And he wrote back saying, you know, it's kind of you to say that, but, you know, I, I know you're just saying that to be nice, and, you know, and, and he just wouldn't let this go. To him, he was a failure. Now, that's not his fault. He's obviously been in a martial arts dojo where it's almost testosterone gone mad. And that's created a, an ethos or a view of his that he should fight. That's what you do. You fight. So he felt bad for running away. So the first thing we need to do is legitimately tell students that running away is a smart thing to do. And the way to get that through is to practice it. Practice running away. If you want to be good at running away, you've got to practice it. So so we, we have lots of drills in the dojo where we do this, where we'll do preemptive strikes on the pads and then we'll flee. We've got ones where you'll be faced by groups or individuals and you'll flee. And you've got to run to safe parts of the dojo. So when they do this and they do it successfully, you know, if they successfully get away, they'll get a big, you know, well done from me and they'll get a clap from the group. And that encourages the idea, yes, running away is the right thing to do. If I run away effectively, if I get out of there effectively, then that's a good thing to do. So we also have, what you know, when people do these uh, scenario drills, so we try and recreate self-defense. One of the things that it, it's, I see it a lot, it's a, and a big, big problem is these scenario drills always end with someone throwing punches. So it's set up. That's the only outcome that can ever be, that at the end of it, someone is going to be throwing punches. So what, what can also be really useful in this regard is what I would call sh like shoot-don't-shoot scenario drills, which are drills that can end with things getting physical, but they can also end with everybody walking away or with somebody running away. Um, and this is down to the, the bad guys will decide. They will say, well, okay, uh, if he makes a good job of the verbal side of this, we may back off. You know, we may we'll insult him and call him names, but we'll let him walk away. If he makes a bad job, then we'll probably attack him. 
In some cases, they should say, even if he makes a good job, I'm going to attack him, because that's important too. You can't defuse every situation, even if you do everything right. If the other person's not having it, then... You know, it's not going to happen. You can't reason with the unreasonable. So the shoot-don't-shoot drills, where it, it ends with not getting physical, are very important to practice. So that will help them learn to avoid trouble because of an actively experience of rehearsing that. And again, combined with the other stuff, it will give them the permission to, to walk away. And then, you know, the final part of uh, George's question is, well, what to do following an incident? You know, that's really important too. So what, what I did for my students in that regard is I talked to a police officer, I talked to a police trainer, I talked to a magistrate and a judge and talked to them about what's the, you know, the procedure if someone has been um, brought in for questioning for self-defense, what, you know, I asked them what rights have they got, what can they do, what can they not do, uh, and they were all surprisingly honest with me as well because it was, you know, off-the-record conversations. So they were telling me of things that sometimes that will happen that maybe shouldn't happen. So things like, you know, look, come on, mate, it's going to be a long night. Why don't you just sign the statement and we can all go home? You know, and then later on, he said, well, the statement's not quite as I wanted it to be. And then, okay, that becomes, oh, you're changing your story now, are you? So there was things like this. Even if encouraged, never leave until your statement's exactly as you want it, no matter how long it takes. Never talk to somebody with without legal representation being present. You know, use the phrase that, you know, look, I wish it to be recorded that I've acted in self-defense, but I'm not going to talk to anybody until legal representation's here. It's this, this kind of thing. Um, so I, I did this a little uh, guidance sheet, and then my students get given that for what to do. So if a situation's happened, you know, report it straight away. It makes it clear that you've got nothing to hide, and you believe you've acted legally, and all this kind of stuff. So uh, lots and lots of, of, of things on that, but um, you need to make sure your students are educated in that, uh, as to what to do following an event. So, you know, it's not a case of, well, just keep, do a big ki, walk home, and forget about it. There's going to be legal things after that and often as well with these situations people get judged on what they not what they did so much but sometimes what they say they did or the impression they gave of what they did so it's important to do that and, and that's another thing you can do as part of your scenario drills as well it's a really fun uh, exercise when you've done the drill you know you say to the person who was the good guy say right now tell me legally justify to me what action you took tell me why you believed it was legit uh, and then you get the criminals who have played the you know the role of the criminal. They do the same. They they try and tell you why they're the good guy. And and again, that can be a really useful exercise. So yeah, I mean, definitely important to consider that stuff. And what I would suggest is again, get familiar with the law of the land, get familiar with how these procedures work, and make sure that you and your students are aware of what uh, the rights and responsibilities are following an incident and how these processes are likely to to go. Because if you understand that, um, you're much more likely to navigate it in the uh, the correct way. And the final self-defense-based question we've got is from uh, Paul Leonard, and he said that he'd like to know my thoughts on uh, tr training too much. So, you know, how much of what we train is really effective in real situations? Uh, and is there a danger that we can default to things that are less effective, things that we would maybe use for dojo play? Uh, and how do we stop those lines getting blurred between the two? And, and I think the key thing is the lines tend to get blurred if they were already blurred. So in training, if the lines aren't, lines aren't blurred, they're not going to get blurred in reality either. But if they're already blurred in training, um, that can happen. So if those who've ever trained with me will know I make a big point of marking that. So if I'm teaching a self-defense technique, it's done as a self-defense technique. It's done with people running away it's, it, at the end of it. It's done with people creating space. It's, it's, it's done in a way that everything about it fits with the way that self-defense works. 
And then if I take the same technique and then say, okay, this is how we may apply it in fighting, it shifts. We've suddenly got people moving around with guards and you're following up with certain techniques and it, it, it's radically different. The technique within the middle of it all may be the same, but the wider context is shifting completely, as it should. So there's a very clear demarcation between what we call the fighting and the, the dojo play side of things and the self-defense side of things. Now, because of that, if one of my students finds themselves in a real situation, it will be the self-defense training that will come forth because the self-defense training is like what's happening to them now. So that's naturally what's going to come forth. The fighting stuff is entirely different. So it won't be instinctive to come forth with that stuff because, you know, okay, this chaotic, ugly, close-range mess, what do I normally do when I'm in this chaotic, ugly, close-range mess? It's a self-defense-based stuff. So that'll be what comes to the fore. Uh, but if people teach fighting skills as self-defense skills, or they're not careful in uh, demarcating between them, it can all get a little bit mixed up. So they go, oh, this is a fight, this is a fight, I'm going to do my fighting stuff. And then it all, you know, they take them down and then get stabbed to death by a third party. It can all go hideously wrong real quick. So, um, and, and, and as I've said before, I think it's it's good to train all that stuff. I, I, I don't believe that, you know, this this if you keep it separate, people just don't mix it up. And I always use, you know, the example that really sticks in my mind is, uh, is you know, Craig Penman, great guy, you know, martial artist from Scotland. Uh, Craig was, you know, heavily involved in competition karate for a very long time, did it at a very high level. Uh, he also practices in, in realistic and, and, and pragmatic ways too. His students do both. They do both competition and the reality-based stuff. And Craig makes use of my uh, pinan drills, my bunkai drills for his syllabus. So a while ago, Craig had said, you know, um, I've got my guys grading. I'd like to come up and just see them do your drills and see if you, they're doing them right. And, you know, you're ha happy with the way they look. And, the, you know, they were. They were doing them every bit as well as my own guys. They were, they were doing them great. But So it comes to the sparring side of it. And Craig says, right, sparring competition style. So they spar in a competition style. And he goes, right, all in. You know, switch, self-defense-based sparring now. And it just changed in a heartbeat. It was like someone had flicked the switch. So they're now doing entirely different skills and entirely different motions. He lets that run for a little bit and goes, right, back to competition sparring. And they, they start doing that. And there was a very clear demarcation between the two. At no point did anyone try and throw a head-out hook kick in the self-defense-based stuff. At no point did anybody kind of push, shove, try and escape, choke, strangle, or armbar in the competition-based stuff. They're, just, they're, they're so different that it's easy to keep them separate if you always keep them separate. I think that's a problem is when they start getting blurred. But yeah, but it, it's good. We don't want to get one-dimensional. I think if you only say... Uh, oh, I just got to train self-defense and only self-defense. It's it's you're missing out on so much of what the martial arts have to offer. The self-defense based stuff to me, that's that's entry level requirement. A any good martial art should be able to help keep yourself safe from criminal violence. You should increase your odds in those situations. But that's like floor one basic stuff. And then beyond that, the, there's the enjoyment of it, the history of it, the culture of it, the fun of it, uh, the physical and mental benefits you get from it. There's all this really great stuff most people the health is is going to be an issue at some point for most people so if you can keep fit and healthy that's that's a good thing that will help you more than defending against violent crime because it's just it's so unlikely for the vast majority of people in the way that we live so that these these other sides to it are massively valuable uh, as, a, as a joke no one wants to be sitting on the deathbed going no one tried to stab me i don't know why i bothered with the martial arts you need to get something out of it aside from physical self-protection skills so train all of it train all of it but keep it distinct and separate and in my dojo we do that the fighting skills are different from the martial arts skills are different from the self-defense skills 
they've all got punches in them for us all, you know, that, that they've got common ground. But as soon as we start to contextualise it, the context is very clearly marked. And, you know, the self-defence-based stuff reflects how self-defence goes down and therefore you know, we, we've never had it yet uh, where people have, have inadvertently mixed the wrong, mixed it up and gone to the, the, the wrong technique. Yeah, so yeah, I hope that was of some interest, Paul, and thank you very much for the uh, the question. So we're now on to the Kata and Bunkai questions. So the first one we've got is for Jaiman Hong, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. So he talked about the use and application of Okinawan Kabuto weapons in, in, in kata. Uh, my view is that if you want to learn Kabuto weapons and practice Kabuto kata, uh, I think that the empty-handed kata uh, that we have, obviously they have lots of common motions and motions that are fairly close, you know, thrusting with a size pretty much like punching. Um, but you're better off using specific kata for the specific purpose. So empty hand kata should be employed uh, for empty hand conflict. And if you want to learn those old style weapons, then you should stick to the uh, the kabuto kata. Otherwise, we're kind of inefficiently using uh, one type of kata for a purpose for which it wasn't really uh, designed. Uh, I know there's some that feel that certain movements or certain kata were designed for use with weapons. So we sometimes hear, you know, that like like um, like jite was supposed to be um, used for, you know, staff or a truncheon and all this kind of stuff. Uh, just don't buy it. You know, I, I don't buy that at all. If you're going to practice with a weapon, you need the weapon in your hand. Moving without the weapon there is a pointless task. It's a, it's a dumb thing to do. So I, I don't believe that the old masters would have ever encouraged that. I think that's a, a modern misunderstanding. So, yeah, kabuto cutters for kabuto and empty hand cutters for empty hand. So next one we've got is for Jason Verhenger, and we've got a similar question from uh, Alex Morris too, uh, where they asked, uh, which kata would I deem the most practical with regards to self-defense uh, techniques? Um, see, I think they all are. I think every single individual kata has the potential to cover everything you need for uh, self-defense because we need to remember a few things. One is that you know real situations are short and brutish. So, you know, average, what, four or five seconds before someone lands a first solid headshot. They're not generally long, drawn-out affairs, you know, five, six minutes. Just, you know, very rarely see that. So you don't need a massive amount of technique. We also need to remember that the cutter, uh, the techniques within the cutter are not designed to be the only techniques we do. They're designed to be illustrations of concept, uh, uh, illustrations of principles. So we internalize those principles to fight in accordance with the habits that they'll engender. So... You can take any cutter and you'll see common principles there, even if they're expressed in different ways. So I, I think you can choose any, you know, would be practical. Uh, Funakoshi said, obviously, that the Pinans were a complete fighting system in their own right, or the Hians. And I would agree with that. I do like the Pinans and they do like the Hians. I think they're well structured. I would argue that the reason for the creation is a summary of the Shurite cutter that went before. So that's arguably Ankoitosu's preferred methods from the, the Shurite line so for me and I'm, on, I'm only saying for me love the Pinans series I think they're great for self-defense and uh, Nahanshi or Teki Cutters adore those so efficient and direct and there's so much good stuff within them but that would just be me talking you know someone else might choose an entirely different set of cutters so uh, Nahanshi I think is a great one and there's a lot of 
uh, historical information to show that that kata was always regarded as being very important and the pinans are regarded as summary of everything else so you know again the pinans would be good kata to practice uh, too and they often get undervalued the pinans i think there's this widespread uh, false understanding false assumption that the children's katas uh, because they were the ones, obviously, that Itosu used when he introduced uh, karate to schools, you know. But the, the, those katas have been around for a long time before that. Mabuni talks about this, and Motobu talks about this. You know, there have been earlier versions of them around for quite a while. So um, I don't think we can say that those kata were designed for that purpose. Rather, they were used for that purpose. And we've talked about how the name, if you read the name in a Chinese way, it means safe from harm. And Funakoshi said, you know, that uh, if you learn these five kata, you can be confident of your ability to defend yourself in most situations, and the meaning of the name should be taken in that regard, which is why I think the common reading of peace and tranquility or peaceful minds not correct. I think the name reflects that they are a self-defense system as well. So, yeah, you know, you take your pick. I think any traditional kata can be an effective self-defense system. They're all designed to be standalone self-defense systems. But if it were me, I'd, if I had to pick one, I'd go with Nahanshi. If I was allowed to kind of extend beyond that, then I'd add the pinance to that as well. So, and the next question to John Molyneux, he said, is it better to know a vast range of kata moderately or a handful extremely well? So uh, that, that, that comes up a lot, you know. And so uh, the basic, although incomplete answer would be, it is far better to know a small number, one, two, at a push three, uh, incredibly well. Um, the pinance I regard has been one system you know they're all together as one but so yeah you want one or two kata so for me it would be the pinans and, and nahanshi or what many would call nahanshi shodan if you like they would be the ones for me um, i know others can base their fighting system around other single forms but if we just went okay i'm just going to practice these ones and only these ones we've obviously got the problem that we start to lose kata as well you know they get lost because everyone says okay i've learned 10 kata but i'm just going to practice these two and they only teach those two and then what happens is eight got lost with that generation so my approach tends to be that you study a small number in great depth and then you study a slightly larger number to inform your understanding of those core kata so for example for us when we work with the pinans we would also look at uh, kashanku and chinto and pasai because these are the ones that itosu robbed from effectively to make his pinans but we don't study them in quite the same depth or put as much emphasis on them as we do the core ones. And then beyond that, we've got ones on the periphery. So we've got ones that in our dojo be things like your jites and your geons and your nisaishi, where we do practice the bunkai for them. But again, we don't place as much emphasis as we do on the other ones. You know, these are optional extra katas for, for higher grades. And there's also a small number of katas that I do where I have never looked at the applications for them. I just practice the, the solo form of it. But I can pass that solo form on to other people who in turn may decide that they want to make that kata um, their own. So I think there's benefit to that more general approach. If you try and study all of the kata in depth, you've got a problem. If you don't study any of them in depth, you've got a problem. I think it's better to focus in the, the bullseye, if you like, the core kata that you really work in depth, and then from there it kind of ripples out with less and less emphasis being placed on the in-depth study of them the further out that uh, that you go. So, But the basic question is, yeah, study a small number, but again, we need to be mindful of keeping the kata that we have got and making sure that they can be passed on to future generations who may wish to study them in more depth than, than we have. 
We interrupt this podcast to bring you some breaking news. Burutawagoto has blasted back at OFC spokesperson Dan Black by issuing a statement saying that he was at the scheduled press conference, but was, quote, one with the shadows. He went on to say that ninjas are as ninjas do, and the OFC should have known that when they offered him a contract. The next question we have is from Martin Wareham. He said, why do so many karate clubs not know the bunkai of kata? And there's lots of reasons. They may not have been taught the bunkai. They may have no interest in practicing it. They may be a sport-focused uh, club. They may not be interested in the self-defense side of it or the, the in-depth traditional side of it. Lots and lots of reasons. Uh, but I think that's changing. I, I definitely see that, that more and more clubs are realizing that kata without bunkai, it's not a tenable position. Because then people ask, well, why are we doing this? What is this for? Uh, and now in the past, you may have been able to fob them off with an unconvincing answer. But that's not the way in the internet age. So if you don't tell them what the applications of the cutter are, they, you know, they're going to ask Sensei YouTube or Sensei Google. And there's lots of good people putting lots of good information out. So they're going to find that very quickly. You know, and we see that. And then the next question is, well, why, why aren't we being taught this? Why, why are we taught these as empty dances? When these guys over here are locking with them, throwing with them, choking with them, you know, they teach them in a really functional way. And then it obviously becomes obvious to people of that group that they've got a very um, superficial understanding of the forms. So lots of reasons why clubs don't do it, but I think that will become less and less uh, common as, as, as time goes on. You know, give it another 20-odd years, I think you'll struggle to find a, a viable karate club that doesn't include Bunkai in its core because it's just the way the wind is blowing. People want things that are functional, logical, and uh, and that work. The next question we have is from uh, David Corbett Everidge, and he asks, do I feel that kata from certain school provide more material to be studied compared with other styles? Uh, so, for example, you know, does, does Shitoru kata have more information in them than Kyokushin kata, is the example he gives. To me, I don't think it really matters what style you're doing. If, if it's a traditional style, so and what I mean by that is that well, the kata doesn't have a ki on every other move, and the stances have been dropped to make it look better, allegedly. And it hasn't got backflips and scorpion kicks have been added to it, and all that kind of crazy stuff. If you're practicing a version of it that's been passed down from antiquity, and of course, every style has its own little idiosyncrasies, the way it likes certain movements to be done, so they, they change because of that. But the analogy I've always given, it's like people's handwriting. If I was to write something down with my handwriting and you were to write something down with your handwriting, on the surface, especially because my handwriting is awful, but on the surface they would look different. Uh, but when you read them, you say, oh yeah, it's the same information. So as I say at the seminars, if I printed a poem out on my computer, you know, with black print, with a laser printer on brilliant white paper, and then I scrumple up a piece of brown paper and with a red crayon, I write the same poem on it. And they stick them on the other side of the the hall, you know, and say to people, are those two things the same? They go, no, they're not the same. They look radically different. But when you get up close and read the information, you go, no, it is the same. They're actually communicating the same information. So I don't think one style is better than another when it comes to bunkai. So long as you have a traditional version of the form, it's just been aware of what your style's idiosyncrasies are, and then looking at the, the core kata, not the, um, looking at the, the language of the kata. And not getting lost on the, the you know the individual handwriting, if you like the, the 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 surface stuff. Just look at it deep, and then we're all studying the same thing. And you see that more and more now as well. Styles are something that I think is slowly starting to die out. People like Funakoshi were very keen for that to happen. They didn't like the idea of styles. 
but more and more now I think people realise oh okay once we get past these superficial signature methods of the way we all do the various forms it's the same stuff so in the past where a Shotokan guys trained with Shotokan guys and Kokushin guys trained with Kokushin guys um, certainly when I'm doing the rounds on the seminars and visiting the clubs I see more and more people mixing and changing ideas and realising that we all do karate you know it's just you choose a style that you like and then after that once you start digging deep in the kata, we're all essentially studying the uh, the same old stuff. Next question we've got is from Danny James, and he's asking about people who are uh, stuck in their style and teach hard bunkai. So their their group teaches you know long distance block kick punch style bunkai that get passed on to students. And Dan is asking you know should they do that? Um, remain stuck in the style in that way because it can cause problems if that stuff was used in in self defence. And I think there's, there's some interesting stuff around this. If you've got a guy who n- knowingly teaches something that is unworkable so he teaches bad bunkai and he knows it's bad bunkai and he knows it wouldn't work that's obviously immoral he's obviously misleading and he's putting people uh, in danger if they were to try and use that stuff well then the next question is well what about the guy that knows no different so so he's learnt this bunkai and feels that he needs to pass it on and he, his sensei told him it would work so and so he believes it would work he's never tested it there's no reason to doubt it and he's passing it on as something that would work now is that immoral now some people say no because they're working on good faith but I would say that yes it is because they're absolving themselves of the responsibility to check what they're taught so it goes back to the Charlie's question earlier in the self-defense side of things when we were talking about people having real life experience. If you haven't got real life experience, you need to check if the stuff you are being taught is in accordance with the experiences of those who have real life experience. And if you go on to teach something without doing that, uh, you're effectively absolving yourself of your duty to make sure you're teaching correctly and uh, in a way that benefits your, your students. So if people are teaching things that don't work and they know they don't work, then I'm okay with that too, bizarrely. So if they go, um, th- this one-step stuff we're going to do now, or this bunkai, I don't believe it would work. Nevertheless, it's part of our system. Uh, we do it for heritage, or our instructor insists that we, our chief instructor insists we do it for gradings, but I, I, I'm telling you now it wouldn't really work. Then that's okay, because they're learning it as a piece of history, or as a, a form of exercise, or as a learning a physical skill to tass, pass a belt with. I've, I've no great moral objection to that. It's not something I would do, but I've no great objection to it. However, you know, if you are teaching or purporting to teach something that would work in real life self-defense, then you've got an obligation to make sure that it, it, it would work. And, and because the style barriers are coming down now and we're in this information age, uh, it's harder to maintain that position. So a lot of people familiar of the, you know, the story of the emperor's new clothes, all this emperor gets told that this beautiful garment is or can only be seen by good and great people and he looks at himself and realizes that he's well he feels he's naked but they said oh well obviously i'm a good and great person so i won't admit that um that i'm, I'm naked and then he parades through the streets and the story you know everyone's got oh what well, lovely clothes and finally this little boy goes you know the emperor's naked you know just takes that boy to say it well in the past, you'd have dojos like that, so it would kind of everything would not work. But it would within the little group, they just kind of pretend it would, you know. And within that insular little group, it works. And you may get the odd dissenting voice, but they'd just be quickly kind of pushed away. Well, the trouble you've got now in the internet age is it's very easy for people to communicate. So if you're teaching nonsense, it will be easy for your students to find out that you're teaching nonsense very quickly these days. 
So I think those days of teaching, people teaching bad bunkai, and as a result, teaching the students inefficient physical self-defense uh, that could be harmful, I think that's going to, again, die out because the, the alternative is just two in your face now. All the student needs to do is type the name of their kata into YouTube or Google and quickly they'll be seeing good bunkai along the bad, uh, with the bad bunkai. And, you know, people then will realize, okay, what I'm being told is not right. So I think those days are going to, thankfully, they'll be behind us. Not quickly, it takes a while for these things to die out, but they are, um, they will go, they will go. And the next question we've got is from Dave Edwards, where he asks about the best time to introduce students to the real application of kata as opposed to what he calls the beginner's version. Now, my, my view is that by the beginner's version, if you mean the uh, long-distance block-kick-punch stuff, don't teach it at all to anybody ever, because it's, it's, a, it's a martial dead end. I say, unless you're doing it as, you know, we want to preserve that bit of martial history, but from a functional point of view, get rid of it. And, and, and I would never, personally, I would never teach that stuff. Uh, I teach my students the real application of kata from day one. The very first thing is, like, if you if you've got a swimming class, you want to learn to swim from your first lesson. Your first lesson gets you on the path to being a much better swimmer. Nobody says, okay, just so you know, we're going to teach you absolute unusable nonsense for the first few years, and we'll finally teach you to swim after that. You know, any skill from lesson one, you should be improving in the skill you've set out to learn. So it's the same with the martial arts. We shouldn't be involved in busy work. From, from the, the early days, what we should have is, right, okay, day one, we're going to teach you the actual practical applications. So that's how it works for me. We have a, uh, a ninth Q grading where they don't do any kata. That's teaching them some basic striking techniques, a couple of basic pad drills, a couple of basic grappling holds. That's what we do for our first grade. For the next grade, they learn the first half of Pinan Shodan up to the Nukate, and we have four two-person drills that go along with that, which they learn uh, alongside it. So for my guys, they learn the application of the kata immediately. I, I know for some, you know, they'll say, okay, I'll teach them the beginner's version or, or the 3K version. It's probably a better way to express it. And then we'll move on to real applications. But I, I don't think we should do that. I, I don't see the point in that. I, I, th I think it's, we should be teaching them the actual real applications, effective, workable stuff from day one. The instant the student walks through the dojo, they're getting better because that's why they're there. And we're doing them a disservice if we're not taking them in the direction they want to move. Uh, next question is from uh, Anthony Costa. He said, do all traditional forms kata come with bunkai? He said, for example, I train in taekwondo and I have trouble finding much beyond one or two techniques that can be used in a row. So, um, yes, all traditional forms come with, with, with bunkai. Uh, there's, there are exceptions to that. Of course, there are training kata. But I would argue they're not traditional. So, you know, we have the kind of the first course kata, if you like, which are normally just made up of gidambarized low blocks and punches or head blocks and punches. Uh, and they're just, you know, kata for the sake of learning what a kata's like, and largely of limited value in my view. Uh, but th those were created uh, not to have bunkai, but all the traditional ones, so, you know, the Pinans, Chindo, and the Hanchiolos ones, they, they all have bunkai, they all come with applications. Because in Taekwondo, it depends which stream of Taekwondo you're in, but what you've got in a lot of cases is they are 
um, forms based upon karate emotions, but restructured into a different order, which will be why you, you may find it difficult to find things that flow within those uh, within those forms. I mean, there are some people who do some fantastic jobs of, of uh, interpreting Taekwondo kata and coming up with applications that may or may not have been there, you know, originally. Um, but but generally, I would think if you, if you're from that uh, line where you're practicing essentially uh, diced up traditional kata. You're better learning the movements individually and the applications for those sequences individually. Uh, if you're talking about the older kata, so the pinans and back are really what I would call the traditional forms, then every one of those have bunkai. Some of the more modern ones, not so, but they're made up of motions that do have bunkai. So we should say, okay, this is a modern kata. It's the order's a bit messed up, and we can explain historically why it got messed up, but the application for this individual sequence is this. Or this individual motion is this. I think that would be the way that I would I would approach those uh, those things. Uh, the next one, I'm guessing this isn't a real name, because Gichi Nitosu, but he asks, uh, he goes, do you publish your current knowledge or do you keep that for seminars? So, <laughs> um, so yeah, my my thinking on things is constantly evolving and constantly changing. Uh, I share it freely. I'm quite happy to say this is an incomplete thought, but this is where I am with it at this time. In terms of the forum, um, the websites, the podcasts, YouTube videos, and the seminars, I'm pretty much conveying the same thing in all venues. So it's not like I hold things back in the podcasts because I want to keep it for the, the seminars. The difference with the seminars is, and everyone who's ever been to one will tell you this, that once you you've spent that kind of weekend or that full day going through these the information you understand the principles a lot better because i'm there in the room able to convey it in depth so i always say that those who've been to seminars they listen to the podcast with different ears and they watch the dvds you know the app and the youtube videos they watch them with different eyes they don't make false assumptions Whereas sometimes you do get that from people who have not been to the seminars, that they, they watch it based on their own understanding and therefore misunderstand actually what I'm conveying. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't hold anything back. I, I want to share information and I'm quite happy to be open and honest about the fact when things are incomplete thoughts, but it's, it's, it's all, all consistent across all the various uh, mediums. Uh, next question is from uh, Neil Cook. He said, um, and this is you know, it's a good question, this, and it fits with some of the things we've already mentioned. He said, being as it's how easy it is to access online material and DVDs, why do you think many karateka still subscribe to the prearranged compass point bunkai? So I, I, I think this is because they just haven't looked yet, or they're not prepared to throw it away. They're emotionally invested in it. So when their sensei told them they had to do it, and later on they realised oh, that maybe wasn't right, they've practised it for so long that they don't want to admit they're an expert in nonsense, so therefore they carry on kind of practising it, you see. Uh, but I think, again, that's getting less and less, because exactly for what you say, Neil, it's because it's it's just too prevalent now. As soon as you look for Bunkai online, you see good stuff from lots and lots of people. Some well-known, some not so well-known. And, and, and as Neil puts it, the prearranged compass point stuff, it just looks awful when compared with the, the functional stuff. It's obviously deficient, and people can see it as that. So the instructors who try and, you know, like King Canute, that try and hold back the tide you know they're going to get drowned they're going to get washed away i'm pretty confident that that compass point bunkai thing and that one step you know block kick punch from a distance that will be an historical blip for karate 
we will we'll look back and go, yeah, you know, there's a proportion of karate got weird from the kind of 1940s to the 1990s. You know, we had a kind of 50 year blip, if you like, there, uh, and then everything got back on track and went back to being a you know traditional, functional, and well respected art. And there's another question from Neil as well, which is a real interesting one. He said, uh, Funakoshi talks about sending his son uh, to learn a kata from an elderly master who was taught it behind closed doors. He said, do you know what the kata was? And and for those that um, don't know that story, this is a story that Funakoshi tells in one of his books. that He'd, uh, he'd, sent his, uh, he'd been contacted, Funakoshi, senior, Gichin Funakoshi, had been contacted by an old Okinawan master, unnamed, who said that he wished to pass on this kata before he died. And he wished to pass it on to Funakoshi. Funakoshi said, well, I, I can't make it, you know, but I'll send my son to learn the kata f- from you. So Funakoshi's son goes to learn this kata. The master teaches the kata uh, in a closed room behind shuttered windows. So it's taught in secret. And he confides in Funakoshi's son that he's only ever taught the kata to one other person before. And when he did, he crucially altered it. So the, the other guy got an incorrect version, whereas uh, Funakoshi's son got the correct version. Um, now, do we know what that kata was? Well, we don't. But my guess would be that it's not one of the ones that's widely practiced now. I don't know if Funakoshi's son passed that secret kata on to anybody else, but uh, uh, we can be pretty confident it's not one of the ones you find in modern Shotokan because pretty much all of the ones that you find in modern Shotokan have equivalents in other systems, which you'd not expect if it was... Uh, you know, uniquely by Funakoshi's son and there was no other line for it. Uh, I also think that having been taught a kata in secret when a master had kept it secret his whole life, it would not be the done thing to then teach it worldwide. Um, so for those kind of reasons, I'm pretty confident that that kata, if uh, anybody does know it, and I personally doubt they do, it will not be one of the widely practiced ones. So my, my guess is that uh, we don't know what that kata was, and we probably never will. But it is a nice story, that, because it does show how valuable kata was seen to be. Yeah, it's fun to speculate on that one. So the next question we've got is from uh, Alex Morris, and Alex is asking that now that karate is shifting to a more and more practical approach, and fewer and fewer kata being studied, uh, he wonders are we going to lose some kata, and if so which ones will they be and why and as i mentioned earlier i think that there's a place for you know we definitely want to study that smaller number in depth but there's no harm in keeping the other ones kind of going over you know knowing the solo form or studying them in not quite so much depth for self-defense purposes if you've studied your core ones in depth you're good to go so there's no harm in having these other ones around the edges and i think it's important we do that so we don't lose this information because just because you don't make use of it doesn't mean future generations won't and it would be a shame if we're the generations where those cutters get get lost but if they do get lost you know so let's let's kind of guess as to which ones will get lost if, if everybody just zooms in well i think they're more likely to be the ones that are not practiced across the systems so if you think of, you know, the Pinans, Hians, very widely practiced. Uh, the Nahanshis, uh, very widely practiced across the systems. Um, now then you've got others that are not so widely practiced. Where, you know, you'll maybe get it practiced in, in one style and not others. So for, let's give an example like, uh, uh, Shotokan's Hangetsu. There's a close relative of that in Wado Sishan. But in Shotokan, it tends to be quite high up. It's not that widely practiced. 
Um, because it's not across the styles, and styles are getting less and less important, there's less people looking at the bunkai of those forms, and therefore there's not that same knowledge pool to draw off. So if you're looking at practical kata, you'll probably be drawn to the ones where there's more information available. So I'd say uh, Wado Sishan, which is different from other Sishan, which is effectively the equivalent of Shotokan Sangetsu. I can see that one as being one that'll go. Um, and there'll be ones like that. Jite is another one. Uh, again, it's practiced across the systems, but Shitoryu, not many people practice it. Uh, Shotokan and Wado tends to be quite high up. It's quite short. So I think these are the ones that are probably likely to be less practiced as time goes on but hopefully not hopefully we can we can keep it all going as a collective effort where we've all got our own individual specialities but we acknowledge that those other other forms exist too and we have another question from Alex um, it's quite a, a long worded so I, which is good because I don't know exactly what he's asking but I'll I'll kind of summarize it for uh, ease of listening but he's asking about um, should we change movements in the kata to better reflect the bunkai as we practice it um, and he uses the uh, the jumping Pinan Godan as a uh, an example, and uh, the Nidangeris, you know, the high jumping kicks in forms, you know, reverting them back to uh, shin kicks and things like that. Um, personally, I, I've I've no objection to people altering kata if they're doing so for pragmatic reasons. In in my own case, I haven't. Uh, the kata that I practice are exactly as they were taught to me. And there's two main reasons for this. The main reason is I've never really felt the massive need to change any little thing. So, for example, in the Pinangodan one, I still do that with the jump. Whereas in application, I kind of throw the leg over to dislocate the shoulder. Those who have trained with me or seen the DVDs will know the application that I teach for that one. Uh, but we still practice the kata with the jump. And uh, that has never caused us any problems. Um, because the students are wearing the bunkai, we don't do the jump, but it's been exaggerated for you know, athletic training purposes. So I've never changed them because I've never felt there's been a great need. And the other reason that I've not changed them is simply because I want my students to be able to interact with the wider karate world. So I live in a fairly rural area. Uh, it's not uncommon for students to move away for work or studies. Um, and when they go and train with other clubs, I don't want them to walk in and their cutlass to be radically different from anyone else's. So we pretty much do the same wado kata as we were taught them. We haven't altered them at all, just exactly as they were passed on to me. But if someone wanted to tweak it a little bit to make it back in a closer to the bunkai, I would have no objection to that. And we need to remember that the kata that we have now have been changed. You know, they have been simplified. So those little nuances of movement... Uh, which will help us understand the bunkai better, have, have slowly been ironed out of them. So they've already been changed. So by adding in little nuances to in, so it directly reflects the movement in application, um, then we're effectively just putting that information back into the, the form itself. But to me, the cutter as I do them, it, it, the, it, it's only so slightly different. Where it is different, in a lot of cases not different at all, but it's only just slightly different from how we practice it that it's not a great problem. You get more variation when you practice with a tall partner or a short partner in in a lot of these cases. So, um, so yeah, I've never changed them, but I would have no objection to anyone who did. I could understand the, the reasonings for, for both ways of, uh, of approaching that. So the next question we have is from uh, Ali Wittick. And he said, uh, how do we ensure that our choice of cutter and bunkai has comprehensive courage of the common assaults? So he says that some start with those common assaults and then work to drill, and with several drills accumulating in the cutter, whereas some start with the cutter and derive a drill and then log the um, 
uh, the the common assaults or the uh, habitual acts of violence he, he calls them in the question. Well, there's a couple of things with that. One broad point is I I think we need to ensure that as well as looking at what the enemy can do to us, we need to include in our study how the enemy will defend themselves and we try and do things to them. Because we should find that in Kata too. So if I throw a punch and the enemy covers, how do I strip the cover? If I throw a certain technique and it's negated, how do I then flow on from that? How do I use a failure of one technique to give me an advantage for the next technique? Because uh, I think if you start with this idea of a long list of things the enemy can do to you, so if you say, oh, we need a defense against a hook punch, a push, a headbutt, um, all this kind of stuff, what you're doing there is you're making the mistake of putting the enemy in charge. Um, we talked about this in the Thinking Like a Criminal podcast. Our self-defense system needs to be at least as effective as what the criminals are doing if it's if it's going to help keep us safe from them so if we don't emulate the best part of what the criminals do we have trouble so one thing that criminals do is they see themselves in position of advantage they will they will uh, ensure that they are in a position of advantage and when we teach self-defense by going along with that assumption that's problematic so the way we should be doing it is when physical situation can't be avoided and we need to get physical then it's not going to be about me stopping the enemy's techniques stopping the criminal's techniques when that line is crossed the main thing that's going to be happening is i am going to be blitzing the criminal until my safety is assured and that criminal will need to be dealing with my techniques he'll have no opportunity to throw his own because he'll be too busy dealing with mine you know and and, and without that and with that, cause that's the way the criminals thinking so you know we, we need to be careful i think when we talk about these 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 acts of violence and making lists to then say oh have we ticked all the boxes because the underlying assumption and it's so prevalent it's so innocuous this that nobody spots it nobody notices it but when we teach self-defense it's pretty much always from a position of weakness he's out to get out a headlock if the enemy does this here's the thing that you need to do to negate that and, and it's negative thinking it's always saying the criminal is in charge and they will tell me what to do they will move first and then i from a position of reaction i will try and then kind of thwart that and then come back that's not the way it should be we should be the ones trying to get ourselves into a dominant position so that, that's just one underlying uh, thought on that. But to, to, to thrust the meat of what Ali was asking was, you know, he said, do we, do we start with these likely happenings in violence, including, I would say, both offensive and defensive, and then work with those first and then have the cutter at the end of it, or do we start with the cutter and then draw them out from, from there? M my view on this is, uh, when it comes to do you teach cutter or bunkai first, I think you can make a good argument for anyway. So some people go, oh, we teach uh, the applications first, then we teach the kata. Some people go, oh, we teach the kata first, and then we teach the applications. In my thing, we teach them side by side. When the student learns the move of the form, they'll learn the bunkai drill that goes right alongside it, and they'll be inspected to improve on both as they go. And we found that to be the most efficient for us, but I accept the value in the other, in the other methods. No matter which way you go on that, in terms of how do you know that you'll effectively cover everything you need for uh, for self-protection scenarios, um, you just will. If you study the cutter in depth, every traditional cutter will definitely do that for you. The, you can test that by making sure that you've got realistic live practice. Because if there's any holes in your game, that will instantly be thrown up. So if you've never done a escape from a headlock, 
right? And you end up there, oh, I don't know how to do this. Well, that will send you look b- back looking to your kata thinking, what motions within this form can I use to achieve this? Or what principles does this form convey that I can use to achieve this? Or what methods does the kata have within it that I can adapt to achieve this? Um, because every single kata is a, is a standalone system when it's approached in that way. When you get beyond specific examples to the level of principle, all kata will cover that for you. So my, my, my thing would be is um, study the kata, break down the applications, do lots and lots of live practice. If you find a blank in your game, if you find a problem there, then you need to go back to the kata and study it. Ask the kata, what should I do here? And I can't think of a situation I've ever came across where there's a likely happening in self-defense which the kata does not address, which every kata does not address. Because there are some things a kata doesn't address at all. You know, if you want a leaping, spinning, hook, kick defense, you're not going to find that in any kata. <laughs> but, you know, when it comes to the things that, you know, like I say, flinches, blocks, pushes, shoves, bites, spits, headbutts, kicks, you know, um, all this kind of stuff. Uh, like, again, it's not like we, we can end up on the ground. So what do we do when we hit the ground? Well, there are things within the kata that we can adapt for ground fighting use and we can supplement that with additional ground fighting skills as well. But it'll still be in accordance with the common principles we've learned from a standing position. So the brief answer is make sure we fully explore the kata to the level of principle. If we can do that, then we're, we're, we're good to go. Uh, and the final question in the uh, the Kata Bunkai section is Jim Woodward was asking that if I had to come up with a list of the previous podcasts that students should listen to to help them understand the, the youngs or the, the katas, which podcasts would I recommend? Of course, all of them have something to add to that, that topic, either directly or, or indirectly. But uh, if I had to be as minimalistic as I could be, I would say that the students should listen to The Keys to Understanding Kata. That's 10 years old, that podcast, but I think it's still a good one. Kata, Why Bother? What is a Kata? How a Kata Records a Style? My Stance on Stances? The Masters Speak? And Kata, Dead or Alive? I think if, they, if you listen to those ones, you, you've got enough information to to get you going, and then obviously the other ones kind of uh, flesh that, that, that out a little bit. So I hope that's of... Uh, of some value. Well, that ends part one of this uh, podcast. Uh, again, if you are listening on the very first day it came out, part two will be with you tomorrow. Um, in the more likely event you're listening, you know, a few days later, then parts one and two should be in your feed or, you know, they'll certainly be up on my website as well. So um, that's it for part one and I hope you'll join me in part two.